Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. So good. So here we are, week two of Jeremiah, the second of two banters to get us into sort of the series on Jeremiah. So last week, did you want to give us a bit of a recap on what we looked at before we dive into this week? So last week, it was a bit of a history lesson. We looked at the, that's the political um, background of the book of Jeremiah and some of the, the key players that were there. So you had Pharaoh Necho, who was obviously from Egypt, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and another pharaoh called Hophra. And we looked at some of the kings that were ruling over Jerusalem till the end. So you had Josiah, you had uh, Jehoiaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. That's yeah. nice and easy. So Zed at the end. <laughs> yeah, they could have made it a lot easier for us. Maybe some yeah, names too many that were J's, more varied. Too many J's. Yeah, too many J's. <laughs> so this week, what are we now that we've kind of set a bit of historical and cultural context around Jeremiah? What are we diving into today? So we're looking at the message of Jeremiah and some of the theology, and we'll look at a bit of the structure and some of the influences of Jeremiah and some of this Old Testament other Old Testament books that played a role mm. in shaping his message. But the key, if you remember, do you remember last week I gave you one thing to remember? Does anyone remember? There's a number, there's a date. 587, hey, yes, yes, yes. Okay, today, oh, can we go back one slide? <laughs> today, this is, if you remember one thing from this conversation, Jeremiah 1.10. And this is the passage. So this sets the theme of the whole book. It says, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Mm. Okay, if you don't remember anything from this conversation, remember that. Because mm. that verse sets the theme of the book. It comes up time and time again. Jeremiah is this prophet who's called to prophesy against kingdoms, so the nations, and Jerusalem for their destruction but also for their rebuilding. So there's a dual function of Jeremiah. Messenger of doom, and there's a lot of doom, but he's also a messenger of hope. Mm. And big shout out to our stage design team who've put an amazing representation of a tree that has both been uprooted and yeah. is blooming, new blossoms, almond blossoms up the top. So thank you to Miranda and the team. I think mm. Carrie and uh, Robin were very, uh, yes, helpful in making those beautiful, ornate little blossoms of crepe yeah, paper. Yeah, it's, it's meant an almond tree. An almond tree. Because Jeremiah, the first thing Jeremiah sees is an almond tree. And that's the idea is that, yes, the almond is in season. So it's the season for Jerusalem to be destroyed. So with this passage, I assume it just turns up once at the start of Jeremiah and that's it? <laughs> no. <laughs> we can look at the next slide. I have a, just a sample of uh, how this passage comes up time and time again. And so I, I won't read those all out to you because there's a lot there. But you, you start to see a pattern. There's a pattern there. So some of those verses, so Jeremiah 12, 5, um, 5 is about uprooting, so that's judgment. Um, 18.7, it's about uprooting again. Um, but 18.9, it's about building up and establishing a nation and kingdom. And then actually, at, right at the end, I've got 45. Um, throughout the land, I'll demolish what I've built up and uproot what I've planted. It's actually talking about like Egypt, mm-hmm. other nations. So it's not just Jerusalem, it's going to be uprooted and replanted. It's also the other nations too. And 
It's one of these things, once you have Jeremiah 1.10 in your mind, you start to see it come up time and time again. Even if you don't see the reference to uprooting or rebuilding or the theme is there. Mm. It's, Jeremiah just speaks a lot about the destruction of Jerusalem, but also it's rebuilding. So I'm going to keep hammering home on that because that's just the theme of the book. That's the overall message of it. Uproot, replant, tear down, rebuild. So... With Jeremiah's message, we kind of looked at last week how it's not necessarily in chronological order. And even that last passage actually mentions old mate Baruch, who uh, <laughs> yeah. is sort of the compiler of all of these different, I suppose, this anthology of collections of Jeremiah. So how can we sort of get our head around this book if it's not chronological? Is there a way that we can sort of section it off, categorise it, understand it as a different structure to chronological history? Yeah, great question, Murray. Um, I had tremendous difficulty doing this. I think most commentators have tremendous difficulty but if we look at the next slide I found a guy called John Salehammer and this was his suggestion which I found the most helpful look at the book in sort of three broad sections with a little appendix at the end so the first part chapters 1 to 25 these are Jeremiah's messages so we have no idea when he's speaking it's just sort of haphazard randomly out of order but they seem to the theme is about Jeremiah's message these are just prophecies that he gives And then we get to kind of the the sort of middle part of the book from chapters 26 to 45. We have stories about Jeremiah. Stories about him getting thrown into wells. Stories about him putting on stocks and walking around. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of stories about Jeremiah. And so that's what the kind of middle part of the book is all about. Then the last part, uh, 46 to 51, judgments against the nations. is where Jeremiah shifts his focus away from Judah and Jerusalem to the nations around them. And in particular, he gets stuck into Babylon. Okay, Babylon was Yahweh's instrument to punish Jerusalem for their sin. Mount Babylon's taken it too far and they will be punished. And then the end of the book, um, chapter 52, it describes the fall of Jerusalem. It's a good little appendix of just, I guess the, it's a summary of what Jeremiah's prophecies have been all about. So good. So obviously, as we're looking at Jeremiah, this guy is taking a role of a prophet. Oh, I have a question. Oh. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You can definitely Please ask do. questions. Please do. Okay, thank you, Cole, for the question. Thank you, Emma, for pointing out the question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Jakes. Yeah, yeah. It says Jeremiah in Latin. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is, this is a, quite a famous artwork depicting Jeremiah. I cannot remember who the author is, but yeah, it's... Yeah. So just for those listening online who may have not heard Colin's question, it was, there's a name in the image down the bottom there. Whose name is that? And it's just Jeremiah, but obviously taking the more Hebrew version of that name. Uh, it's, it's actually in Latin. So it's Ooh, from... A, okay. So you can see it's like Her- Heramaeus, mm. so because Latin obviously is different to... Okay. Greek and Hebrew. So. There we go. There you go. And it's, it's depicting Jeremiah weeping. That's what's meant to be depicting. The lamenting prophet. So if you type it into Google, it comes up. And there's a number of like books about Jeremiah with this image. So it just seems to be the default image of Jeremiah. Yeah. And feel free to pop your hand up yeah. at any time. Yeah, we should have said that love before. Questions, love yeah. interaction. Um, so obviously with Jeremiah being this Old Testament prophet, um, he is saying something new in some ways to the time that he is in. He's bringing a message of judgment and of hope. But he's also, I assume, playing off some stuff that's come before him, he's, as most yeah. sort of biblical authors do. Yes. So Jeremiah is heavily influenced by the book of Deuteronomy. And if we just look at the next slide I've got, there's actually a small group question for this week comparing Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and seeing the similarities between them. And so 
you look at those verses there, you see the, fir- the first one is um, a reference to Jeremiah and the second one is a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. I've got them sort of color-coded to break them out there. Jeremiah is in many ways like a new Moses. Um, does anyone remember how Moses... Moses' response to when Yahweh calls him at the burning bush is Moses excited to be called. What's he say? I can't speak. I'm a mumbler. I'm, I'm poor of language. Jeremiah does basically say, he goes, oh, I'm too young. I'm too young to be called. And in Deuteronomy 18, um, verse five, uh, 15, sorry, um, Moses foretells there'll be a prophet like me raised among you. And Jeremiah functions like a new Moses. Ultimately, Moses is talking about Jesus, but Jeremiah is like a new Moses. And so the book of Jeremiah is so heavily influenced by Deuteronomy. In fact, this is just a little snapshot of just the allusions and the references to Deuteronomy. Basically, Jeremiah is like a commentary on Deuteronomy. Mm. He's saying like, hey, this isn't something new what I'm telling you. Moses has, been, has spoke about this thousands of years prior. You guys should know what's going on. And particularly, like, a language like Hebrew is very poetic, a lot of alliteration. So just like having these allusions there, you, your ears should pick up on, ah, oh, I've heard this before in the Torah mm. from Moses. So mm. that's where the book is, is shaped from. So there's obviously the idea that Jeremiah is a new Moses. Um, is there anything else about the intentionality that Jeremiah is playing on Deuteronomy? Does, is there anything more than just highlighting him as a new mosaic mm. figure? Now, he's actually critiquing some of the theology of the people of the day. And if we look at the next slide, I've called it here popular theology. And so there's a, a guy called Kelvin Freibel. I, I'm not that smart to unpack this. I was reading one of his books. I have to give him credit because, you know, I don't want to be a thief, <laughs> academic misconduct. He, he unpacks what he calls the, the four strands of the popular theology in the time of Jeremiah. And the first one is the Sinai Covenant. There was this belief that because we are Yahweh's people, because of this covenant that God has made with Moses, we will always be his people. God will never allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. So there's this misguided belief, okay, because of that moment at Sinai, because of what God and Moses did together in forming this covenant, we are safe. Jerusalem will be safe forever. And that ties in with the second point, Jerusalem and the temple. Um, There's a great story in the book of Isaiah. I think I mentioned this last week. So Isaiah 37, the Assyrian army, is surrounding Jerusalem. And it just seems like Jerusalem's about to fall, it's about to be destroyed. Um, and what happens is the prophet Isaiah and Hezekiah get together and they start praying. And at the moment of Jerusalem's destruction, as the Assyrian army is surrounding the city, the angel of Yahweh comes through and 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers are killed. And you can read that in Isaiah um, chapter 37. It's a great story. It's a great story of God's provision at the 11th hour. But what happens? This is 100 years before the time of Jeremiah. What happened was this belief. Ah, oh, if Yahweh's angel came in and rescued us at the 11th hour, he will keep doing that. And it won't matter what our behavior is like. It won't matter how many breaches of the covenant we make. Jerusalem will always be saved. Yeah, okay, sure. Maybe the occasional army will break in and take a few people away, as they'd already had. I mentioned in the, where the king Jehoiachin, if you remember him at all, he was, he was exiled when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken. They kind of say, okay, that might happen, but Jerusalem herself will never be flattened. And you can see this image here. 
Actually, Jerusalem was a hard city to lay siege on, to conquer, because it's on a mountain and with the walls surrounding it. So there was this kind of sense of, oh, we're actually quite safe. We're quite protected. And so Jeremiah has to speak into this false view that God will always protect Jerusalem and her temple. Thirdly, there's the promised land. What did God promise Abraham? Hey, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. And so that's tied in it too, this, this belief, well, we're Abraham's descendants. God's not going to renege on that promise to Abraham. We won't get kicked out from the land. And then finally, the promise to King David. David's given this promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he will have a descendant who will rule forever. And these kings I've been referencing, they're grandchildren, of, or grandsons, I should say, of King David. Mm. So there's so these four strands coming in together. So you've got covenant, misguided belief about Jerusalem and the temple, got the promise to Abraham, and got the promise to King David. And Jeremiah's role is to show, well, these are actually false hope. These are, mm. Your theology is quite faulty. Mm. And ironically, by doing that, we go back to Deuteronomy. And so here is a, here's a great, great quote. I just love from Deuteronomy, just that gets stuck into the people's attitude. So we can flick on the next slide. Thanks, Fraser. Here we go. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, I might actually read this one out because it's quite important. I've sort of broken up because it's a long section, but it says here, so this is from verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come on you and overtake you. Now I'll skip to verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far, far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. Then, then I'll skip a bit more. Then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. Now what's interesting is when Jeremiah, um, the first 20 chapters, doesn't actually reference Babylon. It's just an enemy from the north. He's sort of tapping into this Deuteronomy language. Like Moses doesn't actually say it's going to be the Babylonians that are going to come. It's this army from far away. And when you think about villains, the scariest villains are the ones that are unknown, aren't they? There's, I don't know if you guys like sci-fi, but have you seen Alien? It's a pretty graphic movie. That's, I hate Prometheus because it ruined the mystery of the alien. That was the kind of exciting thing. Where's this alien from? We don't know. And that was cool. And then Prometheus tries to give us an origin. You're like, oh, well, that's lame. I don't care about that. The Bible does the same too. By having this army coming that's unknown from far away, you're like, oh, wow, this is terrifying. This, who is this terrifying army that's from far away? It's going to come down. And so Moses foretold this. And I said before, he, we've, he's referencing to Deuteronomy. The people should have been aware of this should have known that, hey, if you breach the covenant, this is what will happen. And Jeremiah taps into that language as well. Then when he unveils Babylon, Mm. we know, oh, this is the enemy that Moses was talking about, Mm. the instrument of Yahweh's judgment. So this is all feeling pretty bleak at this point. (laughs) It's like all of these expectations that you had of security, of God's provision, of promises being fulfilled to, you know, the 10th and 11th generation, suddenly maybe we've realized are on shifting sands and not Mm. so certain. It's feeling pretty bleak right now, Mitch. Mm. Oh, but remember. Can you pick it up for us? Remember, you're going to tear down and uproot, but we have to replant and rebuild. 
So this is the rebuilding phase, I guess, of the book. The chapters 30 to about 33, they, they call them the book of um, comfort. This is actually the, probably the, the parts of Scripture a lot of Christians are familiar with. Oh, and Jeremiah 29 as well, you know, they'll have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. So in the middle of this series of judgment and the city surrounded by the Babylonians, um, Jeremiah foretells a new covenant. So if the first covenant is breached, there needs to be a new one. And so Jeremiah 31, we can get that one up, yeah. And so these are probably a lot of Christians, yeah, the Jeremiah 29 part and the plans I have to prosper you, not to harm you, probably very familiar, and the new covenant. And so I'll read this out because it's just very, very powerful language and quite interesting if we'll, as we'll unpack it. So it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Uh, Here's a question to the audience. What's something that stands out there that's quite powerful? Yeah, not remembering their sins no more. Is there anything else in there that stands out? Mm, yeah. It's Put their law on their minds and reminder in their hearts, just for those who can't hear. <laughs> mm. Yeah. This is beautiful language. Really, really beautiful. Now, what I find fascinating, and I was doing some research this week for this, is that there's no call to repentance. Now, throughout Jeremiah, there's this, there's this tension in the book that, hey, judgment is coming, but if you repent, I will relent. Now, a great example is the prophet Jonah. What's he do? He goes to Nineveh and says, hey, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But they repent and judgment is averted. So that seems that that's the normal pattern in the Old Testament is that judgment is coming. If you repent, you'll be saved. But here, there's no reference to repentance, no reference to it at all. Mm. And what, what some scholars have noted is that, like, like Noah's flood, when the, when the world is flooded and God's like, hey, you know, the human heart, it's, it's still wicked, but I'm not going to destroy the world again. It's actually God enacting on himself, recognising that humanity is so fallen, if I don't do something, they can't save themselves. And here what... what the new covenant does is that God enacts it himself. There's no call, okay, now you need to repent. I'm going to do this myself. That's mind-boggling. I just find that mind-boggling and just amazing. That Wow, okay, God initiated this himself. The Israelites have breached the first covenant, covenant made with Moses. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. This, this nation that was a light to all those around them. They have failed that. In fact, they just look like the other nations around them. There's no real difference between the city of Jerusalem and another city in terms of their practices. So they're going to wipe it away and we're going to start 
again. Mm. And it's not going to be a law written on stone tablets, but in the heart. Mm. And, yeah, I always see that... Um, well, I won't get to that point yet because we'll, we'll jump to yeah. that later. But I think there probably yeah. is something at this point to say, um, just to clarify, mm. um, people not needing to repent anymore. Um, could you unpack yeah. that a bit um, more? There is maybe some need. Well, there is a need for repentance, but the, the, the covenant isn't built upon the need for, for the people. Yeah, repentance. repentance. So, yeah, there's not this sort of constant back yeah. and forth needing to earn favour again mm. and again and again. There's an idea that something happens yes. and then it is complete and that there is no more need for striving, no more need for working to continue mm. to have a blessing from God yeah. and be in relationship with yeah. him. So, like, um, there's a lot of similar language that alluding to the flood narrative, just like God's promise to not destroy the world again. It's not based on anything that you and I do. It's because of God's promise to himself. He's like, well, if, if we let humanity keep on going, they should be wiped out. The state of the world should just be underwater, mm. essentially. But God, in his mercy, doesn't do that. He doesn't flood the world again. In fact, he offers, I guess for lack of a better word, an olive branch, mm. saying, hey, like, I'm going to keep this world going. Mm. Perpetually, yeah. until his return. It does almost seem like a bit of a riddle at this point. Like, how mm. is this even going to happen, right? Mm. Um, I want to, before we get to that, I think maybe just go back to some of the things we've been looking at with the big question that I think is always important. So what? Why have we just spent the last mm. sort of however long looking at all this? I think one thing that I want to look at is I see all of this popular misconception theology that we see Jerusalem having and the people of Israel having during this period. And I can't help but see maybe some parallels to what we would call in a modern-day context prosperity mm. gospel. Mm. Um, I know sometimes when the word prosperity gospel, we can limit it to just financial prosperity. Um, but I think that it can obviously extend to a much broader aspect of prosperity mm. in all areas of life. Yeah. How, for somebody who maybe is coming in to Scripture and coming into the book of Jeremiah with a maybe slightly misguided prosperity theology, how would you critique that and what would you say is sort of the, um, yeah, the fix to it? Mm. Well, I can teach you a big fancy word for this. Prosperity gospel is what we call over-realized eschatology. That's a great expression at a party, didn't it? You go, oh, you have some over-realized eschatology. So, you might not be invited back. Yeah, great. <laughs> so eschatology just means end time, and over-realized means you expecting the promises of the end in here and now. Um, I think we'll take a couple of steps back. Uh, are health and wealth linked with God? And the answer is yes. Just, just go back to creation. The Garden of Eden is described as having these beautiful fruit trees, as an abundance there's also these random references to just precious jewels in the earth. There's wealth tied in with God and being in his presence. And if you ever read through Exodus and the construction of the high priest garments, there's all these references to jewels being encrusted in there. Because the idea is like near God, there is wealth, there is health. And that's even some of the weird laws about if you've got leprosy, you go outside the camp. If you have a bleed, you have to go out. Because there's this... If you're near, near God, humans need to be perfect, essentially. Like, human health is very important to God. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's tied in there. And, and Jesus, when he comes, Jesus, he cares about human flourishing. Mm. Um, something that's often struck me is um, the widow at Nain, when um, her son is being let out 
And Jesus, so this is Luke chapter 11, Jesus lays his hands upon her, oh, upon him and he comes back to life. And it's like, oh, wow, what a fantastic miracle. And as a kid growing up, I sort of had this view that when you die, you go to heaven. And that's kind of our end goal is to just float around in the clouds with Jesus forever. Play a harp. Just yeah, chill. you know, just... But actually, the point of salvation is that we come back to this earth like Jesus. And so... Why, and this is what I, would, what I was wrestling with a few years back. It's like, why would Jesus heal, like resurrect these people if the end goal was heaven? Wouldn't that actually be a curse? Like, oh, you know, I've been in heaven. I've seen God. I've seen the angels. Now I'm back here on this earth. Man, this is pretty crummy. Or like Lazarus, when Jesus heals him. It actually shows something deeper that humans were made for well-being, for flourishing. So every miracle Jesus does, it points us to the kingdom. They are signposts. It's not... The kingdom, its fullness, it's a now, not yet. And so what prosperity gospel does is it's that sense of what that word I said, over-realized. It's expecting God's presence, God's fullness to be here and now. And so sometimes we'll pray and Jesus will heal. I have seen people healed. I have been physically healed. I remember on a mission trip having gastro in the middle of this village. And I said, Lord, if you don't heal me now, I'm literally going to die. It's like... 100% humidity. It's quite a Jeremiah high. move there, Mitch. You know? <laughs> I felt awful. I'm digging this fish pond and it went away. I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. And I ate village food and a mate of ours got dysentery. I had nothing. So, you know. Favour of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know, I remember that. Like firsthand have seen Lord heal people and I've experienced physical healing. But that's not always a guarantee. Uh no, countless stories of people who've got cancer or some sort of sickness and people have been praying, 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 and that person dies. They keep getting sick and they're like, oh, well, is it... And then if you have this prosperity thinking, you think, oh, is it a lack of faith? Is it sin in my life? And we start to create a formula. A plus B must equal C. So if you do A and B and get Z, then you're like, oh, well, I must have done something wrong with A and B. Mm. And what Jeremiah does is actually refines us and shapes us. It's like, well, yeah, there's a theology that God has given us. And Deuteronomy unpacks that. If you're obedient, God will bless you. If you're disobedient, there's a punishment. But we look at the life of Jeremiah. The guy is so righteous. He gets this huge calling on his life to preach the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, those four strands that we spoke about, they saw him as a traitor. That's why they locked him up. Like, you are a traitor. You can't say this. But he remained faithful. It was a huge struggle. And Jeremiah struggles with his physical health. Being thrown into a well and just left there to rot, that breaks you down physically, emotionally, mm-hmm. and even spiritually. He struggles with that. And so Jeremiah shows that just because you're righteous doesn't mean you get a blessed life. There's this mismatch in life. This is why the book of Ecclesiastes is my favorite, because it recognizes, hey, God promised blessings for those who are obedient and a curse on those who are wicked. But I'm actually seeing this. I'm seeing the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. It's not supposed to be that way. Mm. And the Bible recognises that there is this mismatch Mm. in this world. And so that's why I think Jeremiah is Mm. such a helpful book for critiquing some of this, I guess, yeah, prosperity thinking, is that ultimately God is God's will. Mm. God does want us to have human flourishing. That's why Jesus healed the blind. That's why he fed Mm. 5,000 people in the wilderness, because he cares about us as people. But the kingdom hasn't arrived yet. And so we will still struggle with pain, suffering and tears in this lifetime until Jesus returns, until the new covenant 
is fully established. So an over-realized eschatology, an over-realization that God's full second coming as Christ now is going to lead us in an incorrect theology of prosperity that ultimately is going to lead to disappointment. Yeah. Um, what does a even-keeled eschatology <laughs> look like and how do we live that out in practice? Yeah, even-keeled. I think uh, for me, it's how I say it, is living life in the grey and just going, I don't know. I, I remember when the, the bushfires were on and this lady said, Mitch, why are the bushfires on? I said, I don't know. This, this is 2019 when, yeah... Um, I said, I don't know. She goes, I don't want to hear that. And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. And I think it's actually becoming more humble about God. As God, we get little snapshots into the heavenly realm um, in the book of Job, where we see Satan talking to God directly mm. about Job. Um, yeah, the prophet um, Mirkah, he, he sees the heavenly throne room and the deceiving spirit that will speak deception into the mouths of the prophets, so King Ahaz has is killed. Um, we see that. And so there's this spiritual realm that we just don't, aren't aware of. And Job, that's why I love the book of Job too, Job actually never answers why there's evil and suffering. It's like, well, where were you when I created the world? Mm. Hmm, that's the answer. And sort of leave it that way. Um, and it's sort of going back to, I guess, the topic of Jeremiah, is that Jeremiah is it's about tearing down and rebuilding. And so perhaps there's things in God's will for our lives that require tearing down and rebuilding mm. and just sitting with that tension and going, I don't know why some people's lives are being torn down right now and I don't know why some people's lives are being built up. But what Jeremiah calls us to do, and I said this last week, is to be faithful, is to be steadfast regardless of the situation. Mm. Yeah, I think if you're being thrown into well, locked into stocks, thrown into prison, being just hated by everyone around you, it'd be pretty tempting just to cave in. Mm. To go, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm not prophesying right. Maybe this is all in my head. Mm. But he remains faithful despite the struggles he has. And so I think for us, it's regardless of the situation, whether we're in a season of being uprooted mm. or being rebuilt, mm. it's remaining faithful. Mm. And so... And just being comfortable with the, the, don't, the unknowns. Um, it's a problem with us Westerners, and particularly we have our systematic theologies, which go, you know, is it characters of God? Is, you know, God knows all things, maybe, and all that. But the Jews live life two-handed. Mm. And that's their approach to Scripture. It's like, one Scripture says this, one Scripture says that. What does that mean? I don't know. That's a mystery, and we celebrate that. And I think as Christians, we need to embrace that more. There's a mystery. I don't know. Praise God. Praise God that I don't know him that some thousand-page systematic theology textbook can't unpack him, that we must live with that tension and that mystery. Yeah. So we looked at this uh, Jeremiah um, passage just before, Jeremiah 31, mm. and there was this mystery. There's this hope, this sort of confusing answer mm. for things to be fulfilled uh, without a continual need to return again and again mm. to repentance, but a sort of once-off, yeah. completely finished. I feel like most people know where we're going yeah, with yeah, this, yeah. but do you want to wrap it up for well, us, put a nice bow on this? Yeah, a nice bow is ultimately all Scripture points to Jesus. And so Jeremiah 31, is the sign of that is actually in the table we have presented here, which is why we didn't do communion last week. And so the only, there's only one reference to New Covenant in the Old Testament, and there's only one reference to New Covenant in the New Testament. And it comes from Luke chapter 22. Can we get that next slide? On there on the screen. 
And so on the night where Jesus is betrayed and he takes the bread and he said, I'll read here, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus takes that, that Passover meal, the rescuing from Egypt, and transforms it into a new Passover. And one of the things that well, we've spoken about, Jeremiah um, talks about how you're writing the law on people's hearts. That's what Jesus does. Jesus brings in the Holy Spirit so that we can understand God with this perfect knowledge. And what's also cool is at the beginning of um, Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. For those that don't know their Bible history very well, the, the tribes were split. So you had the kingdom of Judah, which had... Um, tribe of Judah, funnily enough, and Benjamin, the two tribes. And then the rest of Israel, the ten tribes, split off. What, how many disciples does Jesus call? Twelve. Yeah, funnily enough, that's representing the new twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is forming a new Israel, a new humanity. And we haven't seen the new covenant that Jeremiah promised in its fullness. We... Yeah, the word for knowing, it's this personal, intimate knowledge of knowing God perfectly. I, I don't know God fully yet, mm. but I know what Jesus has done. I know that, that the cup it represents a new covenant, which is formed in his blood. Covenants were made by blood. When Moses read out the, the first covenant, he sprinkled the Israelites with blood as a way to show that this is a sign for it. Now, Jesus is saying this covenant's not animal blood, mm. It's my blood, which is poured out for us. Mm. And so that's where it's Jeremiah. Obviously, it's pointing to is Jesus. So sure, he has these historical contexts. Mm. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the hope. And the hope for the future is found in Jesus. In many ways, Jesus, he, Jesus is many things. He's new David, new Abraham. He also is a new Jeremiah. Mm. Jeremiah went into the temple and he proclaimed destruction upon it. Jesus did the same. Mm. Jeremiah wept for Jerusalem. Jesus does the same. And so as we read the pages of Jeremiah, we kind of have that historical context back in our minds. Oh, those five kings who started with Jays, whose names I can't remember, with some Babylon and Egypt in, in the, the sixth century before Christ. You kind of have that in the back of your mind, but you're reading it with a future lens too, saying, well, Jesus fulfills all scripture. And he's and rebuilding this that hope that Jeremiah gives, we see it found in Jesus. Beautiful. So as we're going now into this time of communion, I suppose this is the big thing, isn't it? Jesus said to his disciples, I will tear down this temple and in three days I will build it back up again. And the disciples at the time thought that he was crazy because they thought that he was speaking about the stone temple that was built by human hands, but he was speaking about his own body. He said... This temple will be torn down, but in three days it will be raised again. And I think that it's quite beautiful, isn't it? This damnation, this judgment that Jeremiah was speaking on the people at that time, that they would be torn down, they would be uprooted. Christ took on that punishment. He had his own body torn down. He himself was uprooted from the Father so that we could be planted into the Father. We could abide in Him. In John, he uses that beautiful imagery of a vine 
calling us to abide in the Father as He abides in us. So I want to encourage you all this morning as you come to take the cup and to take the bread, to think about that wrath of God, that judgment that Christ took on that cross, that He willingly had His own body torn down on that cross, that He willingly was uprooted from His Father in heaven so that we could step into an inheritance of being planted into our lovely, heavenly, eternal relationship with our Father in heaven. And we could be built up to be everything that He has planned for us. I want you to just take a moment to consider, is there something in my life right now that needs to be torn down? You know, we can try to tear down barriers and tear down stumbling blocks in our own life through our own power, but ultimately it is only through the blood of Christ that we can be truly freed from that. Only through the blood of Christ that we can be planted into the Father's love. Only through the blood of Christ that we can be rebuilt into the perfect heavenly version of ourselves that God has envisaged for us. Let us celebrate now that for all of our failures, for all of our longings, the blood of Christ brings us together and washes us clean. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice, that you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, to give his life on a cross. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made to be separated from your Father so that we could be in relationship with him. And Lord, we thank you that you rose again through the power of your Holy Spirit on the third day so that we can have ultimate faith and hope that we one day too at the second coming will rise again. We celebrate this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.